Hi, and welcome to The Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist, and I'm the online editor at The Strad. I'm joined by two guests today, violinist Rachel Barton-Pine and composer Billy Childs. We spoke recently about Billy's new violin concerto that will be premiered by Rachel and co-commissioned by the Grant Park Music Festival, Boulder Philharmonic Orchestra, Interlochen Centre for the Arts and Anchorage Symphony Orchestra. Across three time zones, we chatted about how a new concerto is born, Billy's influences for the work, how he writes with strings as a pianist, Rachel's insights on collaborating with a living composer, and her love of exploring sonority. Here are Rachel and Billy. Rachel and Billy, welcome to the Strad Podcast. We're here to talk about this brand new violin concerto. So it's it's not often that you get to see the birth of a new violin concerto, but Billy has composed concerto for Rachel. So Rachel, first of all, do you want to tell me a little bit about how does a new concerto come to life? You and Billy have collaborated before in the past. Tell me a little bit about the birth of this concerto. So the first thing I should mention is, um, in fact, you know, I am you know, what you might call the instigator of this project, but the commissioners are the four orchestras who've um, formed a consortium um, and are all going to be premiering it. It was going to happen with all of them in 2020, starting with the Grant Park Orchestra. And now actually the Grant Park Orchestra is going to be the last performance of the four. Um, we're going to be premiering it in February, first with the Boulder Philharmonic and then the Anchorage Symphony, and then in April at the Interlochen Arts Academy Orchestra and finishing off at the Grand Park Music Festival. So I'm, I'm so glad we're going to get to do it four times within this the same small amount of months so that it can really start to grow. And obviously, we'll try to make the world premiere as great as possible. But then, you know, as the other premieres take place, um, I'm sure the concerto will will grow and I'll discover more and more about it, which I'm really excited about because, you know, there's something slightly frustrating when you get to do a premiere and play a piece only once. And so this is really a luxury. So I guess in that way, it's sort of a journey, you know, you have your premiere, but it will continue to uh, develop as you as you go on. Billy, I was just wondering if you could tell us, you know, if casting your mind back to 2020, you know, you've been approached to write this concerto. Uh, tell me a little bit about the story behind this new work. It's, it's truly been an honor to have this collaboration with Rachel. Um, like she said, this will have been my third uh, piece that I've written for her. I started with a as she said, a solo violin suite and then a piece for piano and violin. And each time the commission kind of got bigger and bigger until, you know, it came to its logical conclusion with a, a concerto. I started it in earnest in 2019, like maybe around October. And then, you know, I was still composing when COVID hit. And it's, it's actually one of the things that kept me sane during that period because it gave me purpose. So the piece, the way I conceived it, it's, it's really interesting, you know, how the piece evolved in my mind as I was writing it. I actually started with the last movement and uh, then did the second movement and then finished with the first movement. And I don't know why it evolved like that. What I usually do is when I write any large orchestral piece, a concerto or just a suite for orchestra or a choral piece, with orchestra, I'll write a short score and then orchestrate from that. So the real composing takes place when I'm writing the short score. 
And so that process was like uh, third movement, second movement, first movement. But then when I orchestrated, I orchestrated in order, like first, second, and third. Um, so just kind of did that. Kind of the story of the piece. I was feeling a lot of dramatic things, traumatic things had happened toward the end of 2019. And then combine that with COVID. I, I kind of wrote from an, a very angular, like kind of hard-edged place, you know, at first. And then my view kind of like softened as, as a piece evolved. If, you're, if, you're, if you were going to compare it to the five stages of grief, I ended up with the acceptance uh, part and started out with the, the uncomfortable, angry, scared part. But then when I arranged the piece, it seemed I wanted the piece to end with the kind of a, I call the last piece resilience, and I wanted it to end with that, you know, and I wanted it to start kind of inviting the audience in. So uh, I started with the the kind of rejoicing, accepting part. Yeah. So I, th I think that's a reflection of your pandemic experience, something that will resonate with a lot of listeners, hopefully. I like what you said about the five stages of grief, you know, that initial kind of shock going into... Yeah. Uh, acceptance and, and resilience. But Rachel, I wanted to ask you, now I know that you've worked with Billy before, but tell us a little bit about what it's like to collaborate with a living composer. You know, so much of what we do as violinists, we, I say we, I'm a cellist, as string players, mm -hmm. we dedicate our work to pieces of the past. Um, and I know that you've been known to say in the past that you can't text Beethoven. Tell me, what, what's it like collaborating with Billy on a work that's very much alive and, you know, you're in the process of working on together? Yeah, but there are so many things that I always want to know about a piece of music that I'm interpreting. You know, what is the emotional content of the music and, you know, and then all the way down to the specifics about, you know, should this measure be on the string or off the string? Is it okay if I split this slur? Things like that. And... Um, you know, a lot of composers in the past, there's been, you know, a lot of research. You can get theses, you can get books, dissertations, and, you know, I always draw upon all of those sources. Of course, the, you know, the notes themselves will often tell you a lot just looking at the score and the markings. But um, it's interesting because a couple weeks ago, um, I recorded the Florence Price Second Concerto um, with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra in Glasgow. And there was a lot that I wasn't able to, you know, to know for certain because, you know, unfortunately with her having been under-recognized until recently, there haven't been as many dissertations as there should have been up till now. I'm sure all of that is coming a decade from now. We're going to have all of this wonderful scholarship to look at. But it was like, okay, I think she meant this just looking at the manuscript, but I hope I'm right. <laughs> you know, I'm... I'm not familiar with her entire output, and I'm not able to read the words of somebody who is familiar with her entire output in the way that we are with so many composers. But, of course, better than any of that is just to be able to ask. So, yeah, it's a total luxury. And what's interesting yeah. is, you know, Beethoven, Florence Price, Billy Childs, so many great composers are not string players, pianists, keyboard mm. players. So I think, in a way, it broadens our perspective. If, if our violin concertos were only written by violinists, we'd get things that were very idiomatic, but perhaps never transcending that, if you know what I mean. And so I think yeah, yeah. bringing the perspective of someone who's writing for the violin as a palette, but not limited to 
you know, the ergonomics of the violin. Obviously, you're going to say if something is, you know, physically impossible, which, you know, Billy doesn't do, but it's also like they might imagine things that someone with the instrument in their hands just simply wouldn't. So I love having violin concertos by non-violinists, but then, you know, there are issues of slurring and articulation where, and Brahms and Joachim had these, these discussions where Brahms would write a slur with a dot and Joachim would say, well, do you want the two notes kind of, you know, googe together with a little breath at the end. And he was like, no, I want them slightly separated. And Kiwakum was like, well, then you need a dot plus a dash and things like that. And, you know, like <laughs> just being able to figure all of that out. And, you know, Beethoven so often writes aspirational slurs where it's really like this should all sound like one big slur, but clearly you're limited in how many inches of bow hair you have. And you have to have to split it, but hopefully, you know, invisibly and that kind of thing. So, you know, what's really interesting with Billy is he'll often write melodies and then he's like, well, you know, kind of decide your own slurs, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, to, to shape it. And, you know, and sometimes actually as I'll play different options, then he'll, kind of, you know, choose one. But then a lot of times, you know, I have the freedom to kind of come up with a recommendation. And that's really fun because... You know, it's interesting in the opera world, um, the first interpreter of a particular role is actually referred to with the language, the creator of the role, which I don't know how opera composers feel about that. They're like, I'm the composer. What do you mean you created the role? But (laughs) I also kind of love that because it is, you know, you do have the privilege of being the first person to bring this music to life somehow as the player. And so I always think about that, you know, when I'm doing a premiere that, you know, maybe I'm the creator of this role in collaboration. You've got to embody the role much like an actor would if they were taking on a particular role that was maybe written for them. Billy, I'd love to hear your insights about writing for the violin as a pianist, you know, from a pianist's point of view. Is there anything that you'd like to showcase through violin writing that you wouldn't perhaps do as a pianist? What did you think of in terms of writing for Rachel in particular? First of all, Rachel, you can use the moniker uh, creator of the role (laughs) with my piece. I mean, quite literally, you asked me to compose the piece, so I guess in a sense you directly do have a hand in the creation of the role. Jumping back to what Rachel was talking about, being able to collaborate and ask questions with me being here. When I'm writing for an artist like Rachel, who's like a singular, incredible world-class artist. I always learn more about my piece. You know, the kind of questions he asks about um, phrasing and articulation and dynamics and things like that and interpretation mood always make me really have to know why I wrote something. If, you know, if a slur goes to beat two of measure 43 or does it go to beat three of measure 44, if a phrase is supposed to go do one or the other, I have to really know why I wrote that phrase and how it fits within the context of everything else that I wrote, contrapuntally or harmonically or whatever. So it's always a learning experience for me to be asked these questions too. It forces me to actually have to investigate uh, what I wrote and the motivations behind it. I was about to tell you a story before Rachel joined. When I was in elementary school in the 60s, you know, the school orchestra needed a cello player. So my mom, who taught at the school, and the music director, who was like her best friend, Mrs. Cox, they decided that I was going to play cello. 
So my mom, being an educator, said, well, if you're going to take cello lessons, you might as well take cello lessons from the best. So I took cello lessons for about a year from Eleanor Schoenfeld, which was like a total disaster <laughs> because she, she saw that I had no feel for playing it, but I loved the sound of it. Her lessons actually got me in the mode, sensibility-wise, of, of being able to understand the challenges for string players, you know. That must have stayed with me because I have an affinity for writing for string instruments. And fast forward to like decades later, when I'm in a position where Rachel would ask me to write a piece, I think in terms of uh, what what is practical for a string player to do, but also I think like a piano player. Um, so a lot of the lines are kind of lines that that I would write for violin, especially within a, a kind of a harmonic sequence accompanying it. They're the kind of lines that I would really want to play on the piano. It's almost like at certain points, it may feel like I'm trying to turn the violin into the right hand of the piano, the way it plays or weaves over the changes, you know. So there are a lot of, there there are, Influences like, you know, Samuel Barber, obviously, and, and uh, William Walton's violin concerto is a, a big um, inspiration for me, as well as um, the, the Red Violin Concerto by Corleano, I love. But also, Lines by Herbie Hancock, by Keith Jarrett, by Chick Corea, like how they would play through changes, how I would play through changes, how McCoy Tyner would play through changes are inspirations in like melodic shapes that I might devise for the violin. And yeah. of course, Rachel just deals with them beautifully, <laughs> you know. That's Rachel's job, right? You need that effortless facility to undertake a project like this. Yeah, Rachel's, I mean, <laughs> facility on the violin frees me up to be able to imagine things, make my imagination process comfortable. Except you've got to be careful because she can't text Beethoven, but she can text you. So be careful with what you write. <laughs> I know, I know. With a lot of ex she'll text with a lot of exclamation points and emoticons that are not favorable. One of the things I most love exploring, actually, is sonority on the instrument. And, of course, I'm lucky to play a 1742 Guarneri del Gesù which has a very cello-y quality in the lower end of the range. And I always think about the story of Elgar and the concertmaster of the um, London Phil who was helping him finish writing his violin concerto. He wasn't the guy that premiered it, but he was just, you know, hanging out with Elgar and giving him some advice. And Elgar would, like, write all these different versions of passages and tape them up on the wall around the room. And this guy would, like, go around playing this and playing that, and Elgar would decide which... He liked best. Now this concerto has come to me fully finished in terms of notes, um, but unlike Elgar, he actually told you whether he wanted something on the D string or on the G string or, or what. Here, it's not just a question of figuring out what fingerings are going to be, you know, comfortable for execution, but it's like, well, you could play this on the A string and be more open or on the D string and be more covered or more warm, more thick, more simple, you know, where you put the notes. You know, with all the different options. I guess it's similar for piano. I mean, you only have one key where you go plunk, but I guess there's, you know, pedaling <laughs> options to make different Pedals, colors. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's even maybe a little more involved on the violin where you could 
play something in yeah. so many different places, which ends up having very different effects. And it's like, well, which one? And I imagine it's going to change depending on, on the day, you know, perhaps on, on the environment. We've got four opportunities to play it this year. and The sound of the venue. No doubt they're all going to be completely different, well, right? Well, and, and, you know, in the future, if another violinist with their personality plays it on their instrument, which might have a different voice, you know, maybe there would... And, yes. yeah, and that's the, always the sign of a great piece when it can have a variety of approaches and still be effective. But, obviously, in this case, I have to figure out what's going to sound... Um, the most beautiful on the particular instrument in my hands, which I'm really looking forward to refining. I, li- I like to think that it's just the start of a journey, just the beginning. Exactly. Definitely. Rachel and Billy, thank you so much for joining me today on the Strad Podcast. And all the best for your upcoming performances. Um, we look forward to hearing more about it in the months to come. Oh, I look forward to hearing Thanks too. so much for having me on. And... Um, Hopefully you can catch the concerto and hear it, but you can definitely hear Billy's other violin writing for me. Um, There's a YouTube video where I'm playing various of the movements from his suite, and there's also a commercial recording of his work, Incident for Violin and Piano, which is on my Blues Dialogues record. That was Rachel Barton-Pine and Billy Childs. As mentioned, they have collaborated before, with Billy writing for Rachel four portraits for solo violin, and Incident on Larpenteur Avenue for Violin and Piano, which you're hearing right now. You'll find a link to the YouTube video of Billy's solo violin music, mentioned by Rachel, in the show notes. And as they mentioned, the first performance of this brand new violin concerto will be on Saturday the 12th of February with the Boulder Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Michael Butterman. Check out the show notes for details of the other performances later this year. And don't forget to head to our website, thestrad.com, to check out the latest news and articles on all things to do with string playing. And if you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. We've got 50% off an online subscription for students. And if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days and start reading right away with no strings attached. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or a rating. Thanks again for listening and tune in soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.